As I came in this morning, as, as I mingled around outside, I noticed that none of you were rubbing your necks or your lower backs despite having to drive here. I noticed that nobody's hair is disheveled because your car was bouncing so uncontrollably as you drove to church. Nor is anyone green in the face from the wild ride that they had here. And I don't think there's anyone in the parking lot right now calling AAA because when they went up the small curb into the parking lot that their chassis broke in half. And that's because your car is equipped with shock absorbers. The pump-like devices in your car that keeps your tires in contact with the ground, it keeps your ride smooth and level. Without them, your drive would be problematic. It would be painful. It would be like a roller coaster. And this is why deacons are often referred to as the shock absorbers of the church. Without them, the church would not run smoothly. They meet the needs that are often unknown to the majority of the church, new Bibles in the back, proper lighting controls in the room, but they also meet many of the needs that the majority of the church would deem most necessary, bringing meals to the sick, finding a place to have service, having enough chairs to sit on. Like the shock absorbers of your car, their role largely goes unnoticed but is vital to the church. We've talked about elders. Now let's talk about the only other position ordained in the New Testament for the local church, deacons. The office of deacon is distinct from that of elder, although as we're still talking about a former role, formal role in God's family, the church, you will see that the same level of godliness and faithfulness is required of deacons as it is of elders. They are still Christians serving God, after all. And so as we begin a new series on looking at deacons after having unpacked what elders are, would you turn with me, still in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but in verses 8 through 10. We're going to look at this passage on deacons over the next three weeks. We will look at verses 8 through 10 this morning. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10. He goes right into talking about deacons after talking about elders and says this, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. This morning, very simply, I want to give you four explanations of the role of deacon. What is a deacon? What does a deacon do? What does a deacon need to be? Four explanations of the role of deacon. Before we look at the qualifications of a deacon, let's talk about what a deacon is. In our first point, the clarification of deacons, the clarification. Now, you may be very well aware of this. But the word deacon literally means servant. It is the Greek word for servant. It is the noun form of the Greek word to serve. Now, although we know that this word is here referring to a particular people who have the role or an official title position within the local church of deacon, the general sense of the word had several different usages 
and was used of many people who did not hold the office of deacon. By looking at how else this word was used outside of referring to official deacons will help us understand the role and mentality official deacons are to have. So I'm going to go through these. There's three usages of this word. The oldest and thus most common usage of the word in the New Testament was to refer to menial service. Waiting on tables was a prime example. Now you need to remove from your mind the last waiter you had at that fancy restaurant that probably makes more money than you do on tips. We are talking about the lowliest of the low. These are not trained Michelin star waiters. These are just people who could do nothing else, though so they said, why don't you put a plate on a table once in a while? It was a menial task. And I invite you to turn with me to the Gospels in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, and we'll see this general usage of the word which referred to just someone doing menial tasks like waiting on tables. Luke 17 7 through 10. He says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? The answer is, Nobody would do this. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself, clean yourself up, and serve? There's the word, the verb form of the word. Serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So you see already in our position before Christ how it's very appropriate for this word to be used in regards to menial tasks, as we are to serve in any way possible, serve God and His people. Turn ahead a few pages to Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. And again, we're looking at a general usage of this word servant and not particularly about the office of deacon. Luke 22, 24 through 27. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, this is Jesus speaking, am among you as the one who serves. And what we see here is Jesus telling his disciples that they must be like servants performing even the menial tasks, serving like the slaves waiting on tables for their master, leaning, that's how they would eat back then, at least the rich would, leaning on the chair, on the couch as they ate. But notice, something else that he is pointing out is that he, Jesus Christ himself, was such a servant. In other words, this kind of behavior is not below the disciples because it is not below Christ himself. So certainly we today 
must not think any service is below us. Now, we're talking about Christian service and ministry. If you are a manager, a boss, a CEO of a company, your time and position may objectively tell you that cleaning the building's toilets is not your job, and that's fine and appropriate. But as a Christian, we are not to think that way. As a Christian, for example, cleaning a friend in need's toilet is never below you. It is an act of worship and honoring God. This word eventually broadened to speak of any type of service in general. This is the second usage of the word. We see this as a major theme in both the example and teachings of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, he emphasizes that the greatest in the kingdom is to serve. Listen to Matthew 23, 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. That's the word, diakonos, deacon. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. We're very familiar with this principle. Mark 9, 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, and diakonos, servant of all. So in this sense, all Christians are deacons or servants, which is why this Greek word is used in the New Testament of the apostles, of various Christian leaders, of various people who stood out in the early church, even though they were not officially deacons. Some of them called servants before there was even the office of deacon existing in the local church. But within that category of all Christians and general service, there is a subset. And that brings us to the third New Testament usage of this word, the actual official deacons within the local church. Whereas all Christians serve in a general sense and are in a general sense servants, the true deacons are those who model this service for everyone else. They are those who are called by God and put into service in the official capacity and with the official title, deacon. Now, service can be seen as a negative among those who are seeking bigger and better things in life. Being a servant is looked down upon these days. People are too PC to say it, but they feel that they are too good to do certain things. I have a college degree. Don't make me do that. I am above that. Even in the church, Though we highly esteem service because we understand the calling to serve and Christ's model of service, many Christians, though they don't say it, indicate by their actions that they look down on service. We see this by their actions, or more appropriately, their inactions. It's not that they don't want to serve. They just don't want to serve certain people or engage in certain types of service. And we understand the value of service and that we would not be who we were if not for the perfect example of service of Jesus Christ going all the way in His service to the cross. But the reality is we enjoy our downtime. We enjoy our comfort. 
We want to keep our money or at the very least use it only on ourselves. Same with our time. Maybe we come to church to be fed, but do not in turn feed others through service and encouragement. Yes, we too, Christian, often act as if we are too good to serve. Historically, in Judaism, service toward God and the poor was seen as something good and right. But it developed into a form of duty that was only practiced for those whom they deemed worthy of their time. And I believe the church today has done them one better. Not only do we only serve those whom we deem worthy, we only serve when the mood strikes. When the stars align perfectly, in that moment when we happen to be bored but have energy and are asked to help in that small window of time when nobody that we like better happens to want to spend time with us. This is also why many of us refuse to commit to anything in the future because you think something better might come along. For some of you, it is as it should be. Your yes means yes. For others, your yes is known to be maybe. And for an unfortunately growing number of you, to your friends, your Christian friends, your yes to them means I'll believe it when they actually show up. Not only must your yes be yes when it comes to servant service, but the true servant needs not even say yes because he's there before he's even asked. Before we look in further into the passage, I want to remind you that deacon or not, as a Christian, you are called to serve. Because if there were anyone who could objectively state that service was beneath them, it was the Creator God. And yet He came not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve. So that's the clarification of deacons and what the word means. Let's move on and look at the character of deacons in verse 8. That's our second explanation of the role of deacon, the character of deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Here, we're going to see more in the weeks to come, but in this verse, there are four character traits. There's a fifth that is found in verse 9 that will be its own point this morning because of its significance. These traits are introduced, or really the role of deacon, then the traits are introduced with the word likewise, which alludes back to what he has just taught us about the qualities of an elder. The deacon then has parallels with the elder in terms of having the same character. At the same time, this also distinguishes the two from each other. We'll see that many of them overlap. There are some that are missing. And the ones, some of the ones that are missing in terms of the character qualifications for deacon that are found for an elder but not a deacon are still found for Christians in general. And so they still need to be men who are upright in their character. But the ones that we are going to see are missing from the explanation of a deacon are the ability to teach, which is not a command for all believers, 
and also the call to shepherd or take care of the church of God. We also do not see Paul saying that the deacon must be gentle and peaceable, but again, it goes without saying that all Christians are to be this way. Also, Paul does not forbid new believers from being deacons as he does with elders, but we will see in verse 10 that there is a period of testing that is required of the deacon. Finally, there is no concern mentioned about the deacon's testimony with outsiders and especially not falling into the reproach of the devil or the snare of the devil. But again, all Christians are called to be salt and light. So we all must do this and the deacon must as well. Well, that's enough of what's not there. Let's break down what is. First, you have that deacons are to be men of dignity. That word dignity is a powerful word in the English. It's one of those old words that I really like. When you hear someone say, oh, that man, he's, he seems so dignified, you're, you kind of listen and say, what do you mean by that? And we have visions of things that are, are very gentlemanly and old school and good. But in the Greek, the word that is translated dignity has such a depth and richness to it that it's really hard to pin down with one single English word. It carries all the following ideas. Serious, dignified, stately, noble, worthy, esteemed. If I were to put it simply in English, I would say it's a combination of dignity and gravity. And the reason this is important for the deacon is because of the seriousness of the task at hand and the reality that there are many people in the church that will rely on them. Service for the deacon is more than just helping with planning and organizing. It involves helping the hurting and the outcast. And you certainly would not want a jokester handling those types of things. The word actually comes from the root that means to worship or venerate. And it implies that the deacon should have such an inner godliness reflected in external behavior that others are almost in awe of him. This level of respect comes from their dignified and serious behavior. There is a certain composure to a man who understands what Christ came to do and strives to emulate that. It's not that the deacon is to be cold and humorless, but there is no place for silliness and making light of serious matters. As such, the deacon is worthy of respect. He is to be a man of dignity. The next three characteristics in verse 8 all have to do with self-control. The first of which is that the deacon must not be double-tongued. This literally means he is not to be a double-talker, which simply refers to inconsistency in what he says. On a large scale, this means he must be careful with what he says, being truthful and faithful with his words. Now, the particular outworking of this as indicated by the word, is that the deacon is not to say one thing to one person about a particular subject matter and then something different to another. The, that kind of thing is inconsistent, 
It is insincere, it is hypocritical, and it makes the man untrustworthy. It is actually devious in nature. And as God looks at the heart, this also means thinking one thing but saying another regardless of what that actually is. And this kind of thing is very common in our world today, unfortunately. It is actually considered a valuable skill in some circles to be able to say what needs to be said in order to get what you want. Even if that means saying two different things to two different people regarding the same issue. The world calls this person shrewd and prudent. The Bible calls this person a liar. I'll venture to guess that all of you have experienced this. Someone speaking nicely to your face, but critical behind your back, and you hear about it. And you know how hurtful that can be. You know how all of a sudden it puts you in a tailspin regarding whether this person is even your friend or not. They are now not a friend, but a source of distrust. The deacon cannot be this person. You, Christian, cannot be this person. Like the elder, the deacon is not to be addicted to much wine as well. This is a different Greek word than was used for the elder, but the meaning is the same. It means not paying attention to alcohol. Obviously, first and foremost, not someone who gets drunk, but also not someone who is preoccupied with alcohol. He doesn't let it influence his life, whether that's through getting drunk or just an obsession with it while remaining sober. Finally, in verse 8, we are told that the deacon cannot be fond of sordid gain. Sordid means dishonest. The deacon is someone who comes by his money legally, And morally, in other words, in a way that would be allowed by the Scriptures and in a way that glorifies God. Now, to be fond of sordid gain in terms of employment could range from selling something illegally to making money legally, but in a business that is immoral. For the sake of the children, I won't go into examples, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. It could also involve a job that is fine, but seeking dishonest financial gain in ways that have nothing to do with your job, not being diligently honest on your taxes, which includes not letting the IRS know about, for example, cash payments, tips you receive in cash, loaning someone in great need some money with an exorbitant interest rate or, according to the New Testament, an interest rate at all. Again, this is personal, not your job. This obviously goes back to the love of money. You can see how someone who is greedy or stingy or miserly is more susceptible to the temptation for dishonest gain. Ultimately, the deacon's main objective in his life cannot be to make money. He needs to make money. He needs to be a good steward of his debtors and his family and his own physical body. But that should not be his primary gain, goal rather, to get rich. When it comes to ministry, 
His ministry cannot be motivated by financial gain. Now, I don't know of any churches where deacons are paid to be deacons, but there can be perks, free meals, reimbursements for purchases, things like that. Those are fine to give deacons. They just cannot be the reason anyone pursues the office. So, this man should not just be someone who doesn't love money, but even further is someone who is faithful and honest, especially in financial matters. Not just saying, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't lie to the IRS. I know I didn't lie. But going over it again, not just to get the maximum write-offs, but also to make sure they're giving the maximum they're supposed to to the government. Honesty. Also, on a side note, deacons, or not a side note, a minor point, deacons are often the ones who handle the church money. So if you put someone who has no problem with dishonest gain in their career and is greedy in that position, then there will be a temptation to slip some of those bills in their pocket. There's also a side temptation of jealousy. When they see who gives how much to the church, which they then do the math and realize how much someone is worth and how much they make, or judging those who don't give much at all. Well, what would you think of me as a pastor, let alone just a Christian, if after our lunch you thanked me for meeting with you, for the counsel that I gave? You said, you know, pastor, everything people say is true. It's very clear from this meeting to me that you love us. And I say, I really got to be honest with you. The only reason I came today is because I can write off this meal as a business expense. Does that make you feel good? You would chuckle, and if I didn't laugh too, you'd be like, oh, okay. Could you recommend another church? <laughs> so we understand, again, the importance of having a right attitude towards money. And so, as we come to the end of verse 8, we see that a deacon must be a dignified, respectful, individual and that he, has, he is to have self-control in the areas of speech, drink, and the desire for wealth. Now, in contrast to those last three negatives, he must be a man of clear biblical conviction, which leads us to our third explanation of the role of deacon, the conviction of deacons. Look at verse 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The deacon's faith in God has to be held with a clear conscience. Before anything else, before any service, any leadership, any help he gives, the deacon must be upright in his walk with God. Now, the mystery of the faith simply refers to the Bible, particularly the New Testament. I don't want you to get tripped up on that word. You've seen it before in the New Testament. It's used a few times, the mystery of the faith is the objective body of belief that begins with the gospel but includes all that the Bible teaches about God, man, and the world. And the reason it's referred to a mystery is simply to refer to that which for the majority of the Bible, the Old Testament, and thus the majority of human history 
had not been revealed to mankind, but has since been revealed in Jesus Christ and the New Testament. In other words, it is no longer a mystery. It's no longer hidden. It's been revealed. Everything we know about Christ, what he told us in his person, his plan, and his teachings. And by the way, a significant part of that is that Gentiles, non-Jews, are included in that plan. There's another aspect of this mystery of God's revelation, though. Even though it has been objectively revealed over the course of time, it can only be fully understood by the aid of the Holy Spirit. In other words, only true believers have truly been revealed with a proper understanding of what all of this means. So for the unbeliever, much of what we know and live by, and frankly take for granted, is hidden and still a mystery. If we can put it simply, a mystery is that which must be revealed in order to be understood. And again, this is revealed in two ways, in the incarnation and life of Jesus Christ in the past and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit as he opens the elect day by day, every day, for the first time in that individual's life. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. There it is. Mystery of Christ in Christ wasn't known in past generations. Let me continue. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. It has to be revealed by the Spirit is revealed to the apostles and prophets and then to those that they taught. So don't get distracted by the word mystery. None of it is a mystery anymore, at least fully not for you as a believer. What is most important here is that deacons hold to this faith, the entirety of the teaching of the New Testament, as well as the old as in terms of believing it, understanding it, and seeing what it reveals about the character of God with a clear conscience. Holding means to keep, preserve, possess. It simply means that the deacon must have a solid commitment to the gospel and all the teachings of Scripture. He cannot capitulate on the core doctrines. He cannot capitulate on the outworking of it simply because it will hurt someone's feelings or make someone uncomfortable, even if that discomfort is for himself. So, first and foremost, foundationally, this means that the deacon must know what, know what the Bible says. Even though he is not required to have the gift of teaching as the elder is, does not mean he is not responsible to know the Bible. All Christians are. After all, how can any Christian serve in a biblical manner if he is unaware of what is biblical? But what makes all of the difference is the phrase, with a clear conscience. This brings us from a mere knowledge of the Word to a practical and moral outworking of the Word. In other words, Paul is not just talking about knowing theology and doctrine. 
He is talking about knowing theology and doctrine for the sake of living it out and for the deacon serving in the church in a way that aligns with proper theology and doctrine. In other words, aligns with the will of God. A clear conscience means that he doesn't have a conscience that accuses him of wrongdoing or sin. It means there's an intimate relationship between his beliefs and how he lives his life. Now, every individual knows his own thoughts. Even the closest of friends and relatives can only know so much. Some of you have someone who's so close to you that during a conversation where they have said something and you realize it's true, you have said this phrase, you know me better than I know myself. And although that may be true, that person can still not read your mind and know your thoughts. And so the first line of defense in living a godly life with a clear conscience is one's own conscience. This assumes that the conscience is well informed by the Scriptures and is not seared by repetitive sin. And when you put all that together, you see see that a clear conscience means that there is no self-reproach. There is no self-accusation. When you have anything skewed in the formula, then the conscience does not work properly. For example, if a Christian does not know the Scriptures well, then their conscience can only do so much in warning you about violating the Scriptures. It can't warn you about something it doesn't know is wrong to do. We all know the dangers of a seared conscience. The more gunk you have, the more fingerprint you have on the lens of your phone's camera, the less clear the picture, the less it can pick up and show you. That's how the conscience works. And finally, if you are not holding to the faith properly, then there will be a disconnect between what you know and how you live. You can find your comfort in knowing the Word without the conviction of living the Word. And there are people, unfortunately, especially in our conservative evangelical circles, that this is everything to them. Just knowing but they are some pretty nasty, ungodly people. So there must be a connection there. And ultimately, what Paul is saying is no matter how much you know or even preach, without a life that matches that doctrine, it is empty. Which means that the indicator of all of this working properly is simple. A godly life. The deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So, we've seen three of the four explanations of the role of deacon, the clarification, the character, and the conviction of deacons. Finally, the confirmation of deacons. Verse 10, the confirmation. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if... They are beyond reproach. This testing is not some sort of formal exam. It's an observation. It's an evaluation to see if he should be a deacon. First and foremost, this means knowing if he has the qualities we saw in verses 8 and 9. 
but also seeing if he is a servant, if he has a life that sacrifices and seeks God's glory through serving God's people. So although not a formal exam in the sense of sitting in front of a panel or answering questions on a piece of paper, there is an evaluation that is aimed at seeing if this person should be a deacon. Now, in a smaller church like ours, that usually just becomes obvious, but once someone is interested in becoming a deacon or the elders are interested in asking someone to be a deacon, even just in our minds, we will say, well, let's pay closer attention for this testing and evaluation. The elders and the church must recognize this person as someone who has an effective ministry, has an effective ministry, not just we can see you actually serving well someday if you become a deacon, but someone who is already living that out in their lives, not in the sense of having to jump through some sort of deacon checklist, jump through a bunch of hoops, but even in the midst of a hundred serving Christians in our church, you know that there are those who clearly serve in a way and with a sacrifice that makes them stand out. And it is key to understand that he must have an effective ministry. There are those who with great hearts serve, but not always in a way that is biblical or biblically helpful. This goes back to knowing the Word. There are people who serve a lot, but others don't respect them. I don't want that guy coming and bringing me a meal when I'm in the hospital because of how he treats my kids. And so you see how all of this works together if you're going to put someone in this type of position. And the word that Paul uses here carries the sense of testing something to see if it is real or genuine the way a jeweler or a metallurgist would test a metal to see how pure it is. There's also a special gifting from God in knowing how to serve different people at different times and in different situations. And then aside from just looking at the external service, the man must be evaluated to see if his character is in line with the standards of God. And if, after evaluating, they are found to be above reproach, Paul says, let them serve as deacons. The phrase beyond reproach is a different Greek word that, than that what was used of elders in verse 2, but they are synonyms. The word means unblameable. And similar to what we saw with elders, it carries the idea of having no accusation that can stick, no accusation that can be flung at this person and it can stand against him because it's true. And with all of this in mind, some of you, most of you, none of you remember this, but every time I have stood before you, and some of them have become deacons and have since left our church, one to seminary, one moved across the country, but every time I have stood in front of you to introduce to you and install a new deacon, I have said something to effect of... It will be of no surprise to most of you that our new deacon is because this person is someone that everyone in the church, at least those who are very involved, already recognize as someone who's always there, always serving, always lending a helping hand. 
They have already exhibited a godliness and heart for service that is really obvious to any who are plugged in to the church. So there is a time of evaluation and watching if they are above reproach, specifically with what we see in this passage from this morning and in the weeks to come, but also in just all of the character requirements of the Christian in the New Testament, if they are above reproach, then they may serve as deacons. So those are the four explanations of the role of deacon. Again, we'll see more qualifications uh, in a couple weeks. But I want to close with this. Last Sunday, I won our church's fantasy football league. Now, I'm not saying that to brag. If I wanted to brag, I would mention the fact that I'm the only one in our church's league to have won it more than once. But I'm not bragging. But that actually helps prove my point. It is well known to everyone who has ever played in this league over the years, and this is true of everyone in the league, And this is probably true of the majority of the people sitting here in this room. I know the least about football. I am not a football fan. I do not watch football. I could not tell you the difference between a wide receiver, a tight end, and a running back. If you were to ask me, you say, I give you 30 seconds to list 10 NFL teams there is a 75% chance one of them will not play football. It'll be a professional team. It just won't be an NFL team. You say, well, then how do you even know what those positions are? The same way I won the championship, not once, but twice, (laughs) because I research. I understand statistics. I can read about injuries. I can use logic to know, will that injury last another week? Obviously, there's some, I don't want to say luck, but things happen. People get hurt. People get sick, things like that. Someone goes to the Philippines and doesn't put their lineup correctly, and so they lose to me, things like that. (laughs) I study. I research. I don't study football. I study how to win fantasy football. I can even research particular players, put them in my lineup for the week, and because of their playing, I win that week, and I still don't know what they do actually on the field. (laughs) Because I'm not studying football, I'm just studying how to win. You guys know that I trade stocks. I've made money on stocks. I have no idea what the company does. I just know where it's going because of the numbers and the fundamentals. And it's the same thing with fantasy football. I'm not a true football fan. I don't really know anything about the game. Sorry, John. John doesn't care. I know that for a fact. And in the same way, deacons and elders, and any Christians for that matter, can look around. They can see what people do, what's right, how to look good, how to win, so to speak, and start emulating that behavior without the character from within. They're not a true fan of God. They just know how to look like they are. 
The reality is people can be served by them. People can even come to a saving knowledge of God through them. They can even grow spiritually because of them. But without the right heart attitude and without the right moral qualifications, the honor given to God and the reward in heaven is more fantasy than fantasy football. When you talk about serving the Lord as an elder, as a deacon, as a Christian, It has to be true and right from your heart and not just whatever you would do in any other club to fit in because of the peer pressure. We need to be true fans of God and of His people, not just studying so we can make the right moves in some sort of fantasy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word and for the gifting of men to serve in the church and leadership positions. Father, we know that we don't make elders or deacons. You do. But you have given us the responsibility to figure out who they are. And may you give us the right heart and the discernment to see who these people should be. And for in our church, even if they have no desire for an official role or a title. May we all strive to serve in this way, seeking those moral qualifications for your glory, regardless of any title or position outside of the position and title child of God. Give us your strength to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name.